And I had this thought, and it stayed in my head for a few seconds. Why am I doing this stuff? Why don't I just dance? You know, eat, drink, and be merry kind of thing. Just ignore this. What the hell is my problem that I'm spending my life? I'm, I'm not making this up. I had this thought in my head. And then it passed. I know if you have a race-based incident nationally, there's going to be a two-dimensional or three-dimensional object created within the week. I know it because we're still buying those objects. Mm -hmm. So whether I dance or not, whether I close my eyes to what's going on, it's still happening. It's still going to happen. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Here's your host, Megan Hayes. Dr. David Pilgrim is a public speaker and leading expert on issues relating to multiculturalism, diversity, and race relations. Pilgrim, a Ferris State University distinguished teacher who holds a PhD from The Ohio State University, is an applied sociologist who believes racism can be objectively studied and creatively assailed. He has been interviewed by National Public Radio, Time Magazine, the British Broadcasting Corporation, and dozens of newspapers, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune, and Los Angeles Times. He's also the author of numerous short stories and has served as a consultant to Hollywood actor and producer Will Smith for the UPN television show All of Us. Pilgrim is perhaps best known as the founder and curator of the Jim Crow Museum, a 5,000-piece collection of racist artifacts located at Ferris State University that uses objects of intolerance to teach tolerance. Pilgrim's writings, many of which are found on the museum's website, are used by scholars, students, and civil rights workers to better understand historical and contemporary expressions of racism. In 2004, along with Clayton Rye, he produced the documentary Jim Crow's Museum to explain his approach to battling racism. The film won several awards, including Best Documentary at the 2004 Flint Film Festival. In 2015, Pilgrim's book Understanding Jim Crow, Using Racist Memorabilia to Teach Tolerance and Promote Social Justice, was published by PM Press. This week on our campus, Dr. Pilgrim is sharing the exhibition, Them, Images of Separation, which is on display as part of our university's series of events, Say What? Examining Freedom of Speech at App State. Them is a traveling exhibition of the Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia and showcases items from popular culture used to stereotype different groups. The negative imagery found on postcards, license plates, games, souvenirs, and costumes promoted stereotyping against African Americans, Asian Americans, Hispanics, Jews, and poor whites, as well as those who are the other in terms of body type or sexual orientation. Dr. David Pilgrim, welcome to Sound Effect. Thank you. I've enjoyed my stay here at the university. Everyone has been very kind, and the discussions have been great. Good. Your visit to our campus is part of a week-long deep dive our campus is taking into the complexities of our country's First Amendment right to free speech and how we seek to balance that with an awareness of the effects that our expressions of speech, whether they're words or actions or imagery, have on others. The exhibition you curated and which is on display on our campus this week has some very disturbing imagery in it. Can you talk about how the exhibition evolved? Uh, the Jim Crow Museum was founded in uh, the mid-90s. Uh, moved into a larger facility in April 2012. We're very proud of it, but we recognize that not everyone's going to make the long trip to the metropolis of Big Rapids, Michigan. So to deal with that, we decided to create a traveling exhibit. That first one was called Hateful Things. The objects in it came from the museum. When people saw it, I sometimes got this response from them. You say that you are concerned about uh, racial justice and social justice, but you only focus on the Jim Crow objects, uh, anti-black ob 
politics. Mm -hmm. Why are you not interested in the oppression of other groups? And my first response, which was kind of flippant, was, but we're a Jim Crow museum. Obviously, we would focus on objects related to segregation, for example. But the more I thought about it, the more I started thinking, you know, I've seen other objects out there. I think a critical point for me was I reread, and by that I mean really read, Dr. King's uh, letter from Birmingham jail. So the idea of injustice anywhere being a threat to justice everywhere, it not only resonated with me, I mean, it really kicked me in the stomach. So I decided, well, let's create a, a second traveling exhibit. And that this one, yes, it will still have some pieces from the Jim Crow collection, but it will also show how other groups, you know, poor whites, um, members of the LGBT community, indigenous people, first world people, First Nation people. Um, actually, those mean two very different things, yeah. but just other groups. Um, now, I, I have to say something right now, which is we did get criticism. In addition to the criticism you might expect, which is, oh, these things are horrible, they're terrible, we shouldn't be thinking about this kind of thing. We also got criticism from people, I suppose you would say they were on the left, and that criticism was that that traveling exhibit in some way would dilute our message, that it at least indirectly compared the victimization of these other groups with African Americans. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I listened to that, but in the end, I thought it was important to show that, again, it wasn't just African Americans, but that there were other groups who experienced um, prejudice and discrimination in our culture. To get to kind of the beginning when you started curating the artifacts for the Jim Crow Museum, you talk in your book, Understanding Jim Crow, uh, about the first time you purchased a racist artifact as mm. a child and you smashed it on the ground and destroyed mm. it. And, you know, I imagine that would be most people's first response to something that's so viscerally disturbing. Uh, what made you decide that you were going to start collecting and preserving these artifacts? You know, that's one of the questions I dread most receiving, or most dread receiving. I'm so because, glad I could ask well, it. Thank you. Just make your life I worse. Just, <laughs> <laughs> I just wish I had a better answer. Um, in, in some ways, I think I was on automatic pilot in those days. Uh, I don't remember the second piece. I don't remember the third but I don't remember a time when I was not collecting. Now, keep in mind, you know, this was a long time ago, and those pieces were everywhere. They were also in the, in the homes of African Americans. So my aunts or cousins or whatever would also have what today would be considered um, a racially offensive, if not racist, piece. So I, I'm, I'm just not sure. I know that by the time I attended Jarvis Christian College, which is a historically black college in Hawkins, Texas, that I had started making the connection in my head between objects and political policies and well, I guess what you would say would be social practices. Mm -hmm. And I also, now I would have been probably 18 years or 19 years old at the time, I had started receiving invitations to address groups about the collection. And so I had what I used to call my bag of baddies. You know, like you have a, a bag of goodies. I had a, bad, mm -hmm. a bag of baddies. I, I tell you, there's just something about an object that is different than a word. It's almost self-validating 
when you show a segregation sign or a heavily caricatured object. It, it just changes the discussion. By the time I became a professor, you know, at that point, I had many students who just thought, you know, Jim Crow was a period where probably sucked to be black, you weren't paid well, you were restricted to certain occupations, as it were, and there was probably some violence, but, you know, it's not as bad as, as people are saying. And so showing those objects gave a kind of legitimacy to my lectures, to my presentations. And then, although I, I don't think I've said this much, I suppose you would say I also became kind of an obsessive collector. I saw so many pieces in my life that I could not afford. And sometimes they were the worst pieces. But I became obsessed about what I could acquire. Uh, each time I would look at an object, I would think, see, if I had that, I could tell this story or that story. And so the, they were very functional for me. Now, the irony in the whole thing is that, is that they were functional for the people that created and bought them, but in a different way. Right. Yeah. yeah. The Jim Crow Museum uses the phrase uh, using objects of intolerance to teach tolerance. And I think many people might think the word tolerance and intolerance are pretty mild in the mm -hmm. context of this exhibit. Can you talk about why you choose the word tolerance and what that means for you in this context? Uh, that, 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 again, is a great question. You're on a roll here. Years ago, I, I read UNESCO's statement on, on dignity, and it talked about tolerance. And it seems strange today, but the way they define tolerance, it was the umbrella term. And underneath it came social justice and and similar ideas. I don't. I'm trying to think if we've been criticized more for something than than our tagline. From the left, what we hear are people saying things like, "We don't want to be tolerated." This implies in some way that you're trying to get to a point where we will be tolerated. And from the right, what I hear is, "Social justice is some left-wing, almost communist kind of a slogan." So for us, the tagline, using objects of intolerance to teach tolerance and promote social justice, uh, seems to be a way of offending both the left and the right. But what I tell them both is this. It's the work that matters. You know, this sort of shape-shifting of words and their meanings, I get that. I'm a sociologist. I know that even though words are only sound, sound signs, um, we do give them meanings, and that those meanings matter. But I think, I think what matters more for us is the actual work that we do. By the way, part of that work is, you know, people come into the facility, we debate the tagline. But I also know that words change. People now are debating the word diversity. There's debate now of the word inclusion. No one uses pluralism anymore. No one other than myself and one guy in California uses the word desegregation anymore. I mean, there's just this constant shape-shifting of words, but, but the, the need for the work remains. So I'm committed to that. Not going to just try to keep up with, you know, when I say this, it sounds harsh. You know, I'm, just, I'm not going to try to keep up with whatever it is that's fashionable for us to call the work. I'm going to focus on doing the work. Mm-hmm. So how does one teach with racist, sexist, and homophobic objects? That's, a, again, a good question. 
Uh, I had a colleague, she passed away years ago. Um, I miss her to this day, Tamsie. She was an artist. She and I used to have some classic knockdown drag out debates. And one of them dealt with what we should call the traveling exhibit that's actually in this facility. She, she kind of liked the idea of calling it nasty art. And I, I got that, but I didn't like the word art being used because to me, art was this, you know, the whole beautiful aesthetic, you know, challenging aesthetic kind of thing, not racist and sexist postcards and the like. And somewhere in the process of our arguing, she introduced me to visual thinking strategies. And it's been a struggle for me, but part of it is when people come into our facility, you know, we ask them, what is it they see? And I'll, I'll tell you a story that's not in the book. It happened shortly thereafter. I was at Western Michigan University giving a talk. One of my colleagues, uh, actually an old student, uh, Khalid El-Hakim, showed up. And he himself has created a, the Black History 101 Mobile Museum, in part because I challenged him to do something, to do that. And he brought a few objects with him. I think one was a mammy, and I, quite frankly, I don't remember what the other thing was. But they were both caricature kinds of pieces. So here we are. After my presentation, I gave a workshop. And the students were art students. I don't know what race people are by looking at them, but if I had to guess, I would say most of them presented as white Americans. And he and I don't. And so we sat around, and there were... Um, probably 13 or 14 students or so. And what we did was we passed around, I think one was a doll, maybe doll. We passed it around and I used a kind of visual thinking thing, which was, tell me what is it you see when you look at this? And we had very few ground rules, you know, no hitting people, no yelling at people, none of that stuff. And just listen don't interrupt and just say what you see you know don't you don't need to comment on what what someone else sees oh my goodness I wish I had videotaped that it was the most profound thing it amazes me still how two people or three people or 13 people can look at something so differently so one person looking at a, a caricature doll I mean they see themselves sitting on their grandfather's lap uh, many years before. And they're not being flippant. They're not being disrespectful. It's, in a true sense, nostalgic. And someone else sees that same doll as a kind of remnant of slavery and segregation. And they're looking at the same doll. And once again, for the one millionth time, it reminded me that that's how we look at race. And maybe that's how we look at many, many other parts, you know, other related topics in terms of social justice is that we're not seeing the same thing. But not only are we not seeing it, which is okay, we're not listening to what the other person sees. So that's the value of a conversation like that. And it's the value of the museum itself because people come in and they get an opportunity to listen to what other people see. Now they also get, because we're at a, at a university, they also get a solid and accurate, and I hope objective treatment in terms of the, the didactic panels that they read. So uh, 
I'm shocked sometimes how little people know about about Jim Crow, mm-hmm. about the era. Um, but, you know, that's what college is, isn't it? It's a place to go and learn. Yeah. Well, you touched on the next two questions, actually. So that, that means we, we can skip those. <laughs> um, you know, you, you said at first that, that I wanted to ask you if you considered these items art. Hmm. And if so, at what point do they become art? So I don't, at least in the main, I don't. Uh, we actually have in the museum four pieces, one that I created, where African-American artists try to deconstruct through their art some of the caricatures and stereotypes. That I do believe is art. I certainly believe that there's an artistic quality to a lot of the flat pieces. But yeah, there's that part of me. And by the way, I'm speaking as if I'm some kind of art expert. I know next to nothing about art, okay? Um, but I don't know. It, it's And this is what I used to tell Tamsi all the time. And I'll take an extreme case because that's how people make their points in this culture. Uh, You show me a picture of an African-American male being beaten on a postcard. And we have many versions of that. It's an image. It's a provocative image. It's an image that can be enlarged, matted, framed, and it can look just like any other piece of art. But that wasn't what it was. You know, it was a postcard. You can certainly argue that pieces that represent propaganda can also be art and it was propaganda but it just seems like calling it art dignifies it doesn't just legitimize it but that it dignifies it in mm-hmm. some way and I think that's the part that I struggle with but I could see people seeing it differently right so this is one of those help the white people questions I'll just <laughs> preface it like that okay the um, answer is see get out <laughs> Um, you know, it might be harder for some people to understand why some items in the exhibit are anti-black. Yeah. Photos of people being lynched are clearly anti-black and right. violent. Right. But particularly in the South, I wonder if people ask you, what's wrong with Aunt Jemima? Oh, I love the question, what's wrong with? And it gives me an opportunity to say something that we don't say enough until you get to the actual facility, which is, uh, despite the name of the facility, which I would change tomorrow if I could, A piece does not have to be racist to be in there. It just has to be useful to help me teach about race, race relations, and racism. I also get related questions, which someone will say to me, now keep in mind, this is a person who just walked past a lynching tree in there, and they walked past some other, you know, really heinous sort of direct affronts to human dignity. And then they'll get to a kitchen where we'll have, you know, Aunt Mama, Aunt Sally syrup or Aunt Donna's syrup or something. They'll go, aha, what's wrong with this? How is this racist? And again, my response to them is, I'm not saying it's racist, but what I want you to tell me is, what is it you see? And do you see a connection between everyday objects, which show blacks as servants, as uh, menials, often in physically caricatured ways, can you see a relationship between those millions of depictions and the subjugation of black people economically and politically and socially and whatever? Because um, that's that's our focus, really. It's mm-hmm. on the everyday object. It's on what you might refer to as the borderline 
object. Right, right. Yeah, I think we have much better discussions when it's about a caricatured mammy pillow than it is about the word nigga or a lynching postcard or something. Because I think most people just sort of summarily dismiss those pieces as being racist and and move on. Mm-hmm. Whereas real discussions occur when we can disagree about where the boundaries are. You know, I know for myself, I spent many years of my particularly younger life calling out examples of misogyny. And I mm. didn't collect artifacts, but I studied them. You know, I consumed media. Um, I wanted to understand the industry that supported violence against women. And then one day I just couldn't do it anymore. Hmm. I couldn't look, I couldn't read it, I couldn't watch it. It was like some kind of switch turned mm-hmm. off in my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder, have you ever experienced anything like that with this work that you've done? Okay, so now you're in my brain, and I'll give you the, what I mean by that. Uh, recently, I was watching a Motown commercial celebrating, I don't know, 25 years, a million years, however long it was. It was one of those infomercials. Mm-hmm. And it was the one that had Michael Jackson doing the, the moonwalk. And I'm watching this commercial, and it's got to be 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning because I'm up reading and doing research, right? And I just I had this thought. I looked in the audience, and there were these well-dressed people. Most of them were, you know, at least the ones that were shown were African-Americans. Again, you can't judge people's class standing by their clothes, but they looked well off. Obviously, the people on the stage were celebrities and presumably wealthy and I had this thought and it stayed in my head for a few seconds and it was this why am I doing this stuff why don't I just dance you know this you know it was kind of a you know eat drink and be merry kind of thing just ignore this what the hell is my problem that I'm spending my life I'm I'm not exaggerating I'm not making this up I had this thought in my head and then it passed. Now, it wouldn't have stayed a long time anyway because I know that whether I document, and we, we don't just collect objects from the past. I mean, President Obama was um, you know, a cottage industry for racist objects, just like Hillary Clinton was a cottage industry for sexist objects. So whether I dance or not, whether I close my eyes to what's going on it's still happening uh if you have a race-based incident nationally there's going to be a two-dimensional or three-dimensional object created within the week i know it because we're still buying those objects Mm -hmm. so whether i dance or not it's still going to happen also i would bet you that almost if not all of the images that are in the Jim Crow Museum are still being created. And so we have a section that's called New Objects. That is not to suggest that we're not more egalitarian as a nation than we were in the 1930s or 40s or 50s, but it is to suggest that the sort of battle and struggle over, over racial imagery still exists in our culture and I would suggest that I feel, well, I, I saw us, and this was naive in, in my brain, and I should, I should know better, and I should have known better. I saw us progressing, and I saw the progress as linear, like you, you weren't going to take a step back. 
And in the last couple years, I've had to re, not just reassess that, um, but I, I don't, I don't have the same hope that I did. I'm not crushed or anything, but I don't have the same hope that I did. That the line is as, as straight, and that the progress is as inevitable as I thought. Um, so. You know, we were having such a positive conversation, <laughs> and then you ask me this question that brings me down, you know. Well, I can relate to that. I mean, I feel like in a lot of ways when you see my background, undergraduate is in women's studies, and when you see, huh. you know, there are many times when we, oh, here's this one step forward, and now we slide back, mm-hmm. you know, this backlash. Every time there's a little bit of progress, there's a backlash that goes with it. I do feel like, and maybe this is just Pollyanna in me that even though there is backlash, mm-hmm. the awareness that went with that progress is still there. It didn't go anywhere, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it makes well, the I backlash right. that much harder. I hope you're right. <clears throat> I started collecting um, uh, sexist objects about a decade ago, and we have probably now a couple thousand. And and those objects are in the room, which used to house the Jim Crow collection. And so we're starting this new journey now to try to to build this Ferris Museum of of sexist objects, and it's it won't be a women's women's history museum, just like the Jim Crow Museum is not a Black History Museum or African American History Museum. They are what they are. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the objects that the other museums keep in their basements. But I I just think as a culture, you have to deal with. With the ugliness, some sometimes <clears throat> there's a metaphor in, in in Dr. King used where he talked about if you want to get rid of racism, really get rid of it, you have to view it as a boil. I don't know the scientific name for a boil, but I, I think of them as disgusting. Yeah, and, boil is a good name for something disgusting. Yes. I think that definitely <laughs> conjures up a good image. Yeah, and so he said that you have to lance it and let all the the venomous, disgusting pus come out. That's how I see this, and that's how I see the work that we do. Not to be defensive or anything, but you know, sometimes when we receive criticism about about our approach being too direct, you know, again, this does sound defensive. But <laughs> what I say to people is, is okay, I can accept that our approach to dealing with racism or sexism or homophobia or any of the other injustices may be too direct for some people. But it's the way that's working for the work that we're doing. But I need you to go do something. Mm -hmm. It's easy to stand on the bank with your pant legs dry and complain about the way people are cleaning rivers. But, you know, get your ass off the bank and go out and do something. And so, again, I I, but I, I appreciate actually when we opened in this is weird when we opened in. 2012, there was a London survey. It was done by the Telegraph, the the newspaper Mm -hmm. in London. And they asked their readership whether or not we should open. And I thought, okay, so first of all, that's really cool that they are talking about us in London. Secondly, uh, I am a little interested in in (laughs) what the people said. It was like almost 80% said we should. But third, I'm not reliant on them right. whether or not we're going to open or not and but what it did remind me of too was the biggest supporters of the work we do are the people who see the work we do mm-hmm. for the ones who don't see it we're, we're kind of an abstraction 
And so then you have to, they have to fill in the blanks and imagine what. So they imagine us as, as a shrine to racism or a shrine to sexism, depending on which facility. But we're neither of those things. And I can't tell you the number of people who come and they're, they're like surprised that it's, you know, it's high quality, that it's not polemic, it's not ideological in a way they thought. It's very much historical. And one of the reasons for that is you don't have to be extremely polemical or you don't have to be at all it, because if you just tell the story, the story itself is a story of injustice. Sure, yeah. So yeah. unless you're lying... It'll, it'll tell itself. Mm-hmm. And then the objects, and this is something Tams used to say all the time, that it, she had a hard time talking in the facility, in the museum, because the pieces were talking. Right. And so she couldn't hear me because she's surrounded by these thousands of pieces screaming at her. Sure, yeah. You know? In your book, Understanding Jim Crow, you uh, you describe this time when your children were playing with one of your mm-hmm. anti-black racist artifacts you collected it. At one point, they broke it, mm-hmm. and uh, and you were angry with them. And, and I think in this case, it was an accident when they mm-hmm. broke it. But mm-hmm. um, I wonder, you know, when you mentioned this in your book, it was almost an aside in your book, actually, but mm-hmm. I wonder if you recall that time that you mm-hmm. smashed that artifact you first purchased and just thought about the difference between that experience and the one that your children had had? Yeah, I think about it every time we drop something in the in the storage area. But yes, for that particular case, yeah, the irony is not lost on me that, you know, here I am screaming at them for accidentally dropping something. And there I was trying to make it what in my 12, 13, 14-year-old mind was some kind of statement. So I am pleased these days. And at the time I had two daughters. I don't, I don't know if my son was around at the time. But, you know, their lives are, I mean, they, they think of themselves as social justice warriors. So they enjoy telling the story. <laughs> Except at some point, I think they're going to start saying they did it on purpose. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know, the practical part of that was it was sort of a, you know, it was a bell ringing telling me, get that stuff out of my house. Mm-hmm. You know, I tried to give it. Quite frankly, I tried to first give it to uh, Howard University, but we just couldn't come up with an understanding of, are you going to show this? Are you going to preserve this or whatever? And then I realized I had become in some ways either attached to the collection or I just didn't trust other people. I didn't trust to not be around when people made decisions about it. Sure. Um, So I ended up donating it to Ferris, which made all the sense in the world. And if you know our founder, uh, Woodbridge Ferris, who listened to Frederick Douglass as a child, who brought Booker T. Washington to our school, who preached Booker T. Washington's eulogy, who set up a program bringing black kids from Hampton to Ferris, kids who changed America. And I'm, I'm serious. Uh, Bedford Lawson, the first uh, African-American to win a case before the United States Supreme Court, was one of them. Percival Prattis, the first African-American journalist admitted to Congress, you know, as a, in that gallery. I mean, there's so many of them, and they did such wonderful things. And our founder created that. And he did not, he had no tolerance for racism, zero. He brought in international students. He had no tolerance for sexism. This guy was so far ahead of his time. That's why I tell people all the time, he's in my top 10 people, period. And that's not some crap from advancement and marketing. Right, yeah. I mean, that's me really meaning that. Yeah. And so Ferris was a, you know, as folks would say, well, why is this museum at Ferris State University in Big Rapids, Michigan? 
because it was possible there. Sounds like it's where it needs to be. Well, and with the internet, we have a pretty good virtual presence. That can go all over the world, Mm -hmm. so it wouldn't matter where you were, where your home base was. So um, looking back, um, particularly the first four years of the Obama administration, there was this hopeful talk about mm-hmm. a post-racial America, and, and even President Obama helped perpetuate that, I think, a little bit. And then in the second half of his presidency, it became clear, even to the most Pollyanna of us, and I think I was one of those, there was not a post-racial America. And then we moved into this election season and post-election time period during which the conversation has become increasingly blunt. Mm -hmm. And that's probably not blunt enough Mm -hmm. saying that. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is where, you know, I kept thinking about this this morning, trying to figure out how to phrase this question, but I guess I find myself wondering if this new in-your-face approach Mm -hmm. to communicating about matters of race and discrimination is more useful to dealing with issues that have been largely unspoken for a couple of decades. And which is almost the opposite of what you were saying a few minutes ago about those finding those borderline objects to talk about. So I don't know, you know, it's like we didn't want to talk about it. We're, we're just so worried to dance around things and no one wanted to discuss stuff that was clearly a problem. And now it's just so almost ugly and in our faces in some ways that we can't put our heads in the sand. And Well, I agree with you that, that things have changed. On a personal level, and also professional as relates to the museum, they haven't changed that much for me because we were having those kinds of really difficult, painful, ugly discussions for the last 15 years in the facility. And when I travel the country, because of my work, people assume and that we should continue those, and, and that was good. So I've, I've been hearing the ugliness for a long time, sure, sure. but there is no doubt that there's a kind of racist rant, which is, I don't want to say it's yet mainstreamed, or its reemergence is mainstream, but it is reemerging in the mainstream more often. There are more people willing to say things that are not racist, but that are racially insensitive. And then there's just people just asking questions that that they had, depending on who's listening, and that may sound racist or racial. So the the opportunities, and I have to try to look at these as opportunities. Otherwise, I can't be an educator. I mean, if I just have to, I think the opportunities will be greater in frequency and in intensity and duration. And we've we've started to to see that. So what what do I mean by that? I mean, I'm going to have, you're going to have, the nation is going to have many more opportunities to have sustained dialogue. And by that, I mean nine, 10, 12 times people sitting and talking. And and quite frankly, we should have been doing that all along. Uh, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't have to go to a Jim Crow museum to have difficult conversations about race, or you shouldn't have to have a black guy lying, is it laying or lying in an in a alley dead to have difficult conversations. Or a famous uh, black ex-football player being charged and then uh, found um, not guilty or, or not convicted, rather, in order to have conversations. We, we just need, as a nation, to recognize that race and race relations and sex and sexism and, and these areas, they're just not areas where you ever finish, and that's okay to not finish. I mean, if you're going to be a mature nation, you have to understand that, that we have to be vigilant about relationships, including dealing with really hard parts of not just history, but the present. 
So on the one hand, I am almost discouraged at the racist and sexist and homophobic and ableist rhetoric that I heard during the most recent presidential election. And quite frankly, discouraged to see um, people that I know align themselves with white supremacist thinking uh, in positions of power in our nation. So yeah, that's extremely discouraging. But on the other hand, I do recognize the value of, of people having direct conversations. I'm not afraid of a conversation. Um, I believe in the triumph of dialogue. How, how, how else can you be in higher ed if you don't believe in that? So you know, I, was, I was a little down there for a while, but um, you know, we're having more and more people visit the facility. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying that I'm enthused about some of the conversations we have to have, but it's the work we do. Mm-hmm. At the Jim Crow Museum at Ferris State, you have a space dedicated to reflection, a room where people can ask themselves, what can I do today to mm-hmm. address racism? So as an institution of higher education that's trying to answer this question from an institutional standpoint, Appalachian's one of those places that brought you here for mm-hmm. consultation and advising. Mm-hmm. What advice are you sharing with administrators, faculty, staff, and students about what we can do today to address barriers to making our campus a more inclusive place? Well, that's great. First of all, I've had a wonderful time here. I've enjoyed the conversations that I've had. People are unusually nice here. Um, I don't know if they're up to something. <laughs> I'm just joking. Now, everybody's been very kind. Uh, we've had some good conversations. I think, as might be expected, in some of the groups, uh, there's been some reluctance to really just jump right in. Um, folks don't want to say the wrong thing, yeah. don't want to be perceived in a way that they don't perceive themselves. So how do you get past that? Well, you just got to keep talking. You know, eventually you get to a point where it's, it's almost like assessment in higher ed, where when it first came out, it was like, oh my goodness, this is just more work. I don't even know what this is. I don't know the value of it, whatever. Well, I kind of think about difficult dialoguing around issues of justice like that. At first, it's just people are wondering, why do we have to do this? Or this is hard, or, or they're looking at the, possible, the possibly bad scenarios that can come out of that. But if, if they keep talking, um, you know, what I've seen, I, you know, again, I, I, I sound like I'm, you know, I use the term Pollyanna. What was the term? Pollyanna. Pollyanna, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I usually just say naive, but um, <laughs> I know it sounds like that, um, but, but I just, I've seen so many people come into our facility and come back because you don't change people. It's not like, Saul on the road to Damascus and you're going to get struck by lightning and become the Apostle Paul. I mean, it's work. And it means coming back and having more and more conversations and and eventually taking some chances and then not being punished for taking the chances. And so it's creating a culture where we're just okay. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to be different. You know, it's okay to engage people. And you don't have to win the conversation. You don't have to win. I, I like a lot of what's happening here. I have to tell you, I um, just, again, listening to the conversations, listening to talk about some of the programming that you have in place. I mean, you're doing a lot of things right here. 
the thing that I would do right now is I would, and again, I'm coming here telling you what to do, but I would focus on engaging my entire campus to be involved in conceptualizing uh, an inclusion, diversity inclusion plan. I'd make sure that we, we, for a whole year, it took us seven months as a campus to decide what's diversity for us. Uh, it took another few months for us as a campus to decide what's inclusion for us. And we've had people say, well, you know, can we use your definition of diversity and inclusion? And I was like, well, I'd rather you didn't, in part because it's ours. I mean, it represents, it may not even fit who you mm -hmm. are, you know? So trying to find a way to engage, and I mean really engage, in a way that's kind of scary, quite frankly, but to engage the whole campus in deciding who you are, where you want to go, you know, how you want to get there, and how do you get there by creating a campus where everybody believes it belongs to them as much as it belongs to anyone else? And that's probably the best definition of what justice is, what inclusion is, you know. And we as a nation haven't gotten there, and most of institutions haven't gotten there. Wow, you make me ready to roll my pants up and jump in the water for sure. So thank you so much, Dr. David Pilgrim. It was my pleasure and absolute privilege to speak with you today. Thank you. You've been very kind. Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks with assistance from Wes Craig. Our web team is Pete Montaldi, Alex Waterworth, and Derek Wyckoff. Research assistance comes from Elizabeth Wall, and video and photo support come from Garrett Ford and Marie Freeman. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.